Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, March 27, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Legal scholars Akila Rita Mar and Jeffrey Rosen discuss the life of the only man to serve as both president and as U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice, William Howard Taft. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, it's my great pleasure to talk about my dear friend and, and, and former student, one of my star students, um, uh, latest book um, on William Howard Taft, who is singular, um, the only president uh, who was a federal judge and then not only became a justice, but a chief justice, so never and no other person in history has been the head of the executive branch and the head of the judicial branch. Uh, and Jeff presents just an incisive, elegant, uh, compelling portrait, um, very fresh, um, t- a very different perspective on this man. Um, looks especially interesting um, when measured against um, uh, our current uh, chief executive and viewed um, from the age of time. We're a historical society, and every present generates a slightly different view of the past, its own history. So, so this is a very fresh look at Taft. So let's begin the way, I think, you're, 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 with the main framing of the book. He is, William Howard Taft, um, distinctive because he's a particularly judicial and judicious executive and he's a distinctly executive judge. So take us first through his presidency and how it's very much a judicialized presidency. Thank you so much, Akhil. It's so wonderful to be back at the Historical Society, and it's always such a treat to be here with my favorite constitutional law professor. This great teacher, who's now become America's teacher, kindled my passion for the Constitution and pointed me toward a life work of trying to uh, help educate people about it. And that's why it's so exciting to be able to share with you our most judicial president and presidential chief justice. We have no other example in American history of a former federal judge who's pining to be chief, who reluctantly agrees to be president because his wife and Theodore Roosevelt make him do it. And then he approaches the president like a judge. He insists that the president can only do what the Constitution explicitly allows, unlike Theodore Roosevelt, who says that the president can do anything the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid. Taft comes in, and he determines to put Roosevelt's activist executive orders on firm constitutional grounds. Sound familiar? Roosevelt said that the president could circumvent Congress and protect the environment and regulate the economy on his own by issuing executive orders. But Taft, like many 
progressives today, uh, and like many conservatives in the last administration, said that Congress, not the president, has the power to make law. So Taft says the overwhelming task of this administration is to create an efficient machinery of justice that will persuade Congress to regulate the economy, to lower tariffs. Taft commits the Republican Party to a policy of moderate free trade. He passes the first Canadian free trade agreement. He brings more antitrust suits in one term than Roosevelt brings in two. And then he conserves more land for environmental protection than Roosevelt does, all the while persuading Congress to act. But then he has a huge break with his mentor, Theodore Roosevelt, over the question of the Constitution. There are some personal spats that lead to misunderstandings that drive them apart. And then Roosevelt uh, insists that the president is a steward of the people who directly channels the people's populist wishes. And he endorses initiatives like the referendum and judicial recall. And he criticizes individual judges by name like a demagogue and calls them out and says that the people should overturn their decision because they're fake judges. And this so upsets Taft's constitutional spirit that he fights the election of 1912 to defend the Constitution against the populist demagoguery of Roosevelt and Wilson. And Taft, channeling Madison, insists that the role of the president is to promote thoughtful deliberation over time rather than allowing the people to succumb to their demagogic impulses. Taft believes, like the framers, that in Athens and Rome, direct democracy led to demagogues and the mob. And he nobly, although futilely, insists on this constitutionalist vision, and he basically fights the election by defending the independence of the judiciary. He has one of the biggest defeats in American history. He wins only two states, Utah and Vermont, uh, leading to an electoral college landslide for Woodrow Wilson. But then there's this glorious second act where, after having pined for the chief justiceship, he achieves it, and he becomes our most presidential chief justice and okay, finds so let's, the let's success hold off on that. that we will. But um, I just, just really just, wanted to right. make sure so, that you understand why this is a really exciting president. So that's <laughs> this new portrait of Taft through the prism of Trump, really, and Trumpism, um, and anxieties about populism of a Brexit sort, about um, uh, presidents who um, uh, uh, tr- uh, try to have a, um, a direct connection unmediated to voters rather than restrain their communications in, in very presidential ways. So this is, this is a book all about Trump and tweets um, and, 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 and Brexit. And it's a, and, now, and, Akil, you know, the National Constitution Center, where I work, is entirely nonpartisan. Yeah, but, so uh, any suggestion oh. that Trump is intended well, but is it's just a, a, but just it's a just coincidence. A, it, really. but it's a reminder, though, you see, that the past always looks different as the present advances. So each present generates its own history. Even if the facts stay the same, our, our perspective on, on, on the, does change. Um, and... So this is also a take not just on Taft, but on Teddy Roosevelt, who looks rather Trumpian in certain ways. He's up there on Mount Rushmore, and Taft is not. It's a critique of Woodrow Wilson and some of his excesses. Um, this is a, um, uh, a book, unless I, you know, you can tell me if I've misunderstood it, which is that, you know, there was a time when the Republican Party was sober, steady, 
solid. Okay, maybe a little bit staid, but actually not altogether stand pat. And that wasn't a, you know that republic that wasn't a bad um, a world. But the Democratic Party also is subject to the same populist forces of new media technologies. President Obama was criticized for ruling by executive order, just as President Trump is. So this, if this is a critique he, he would be of a populism, Wilson. yes, well, every president essentially since Taft, certainly since FDR, has been what Arthur Schlesinger, the general editor of this series, called an imperial presidency. And the Taftian vision, which was the Madison's vision, of a constrained president and a constrained Congress with vigorous but limited powers operating within constitutional bounds was lost long ago. And if Taft has relevancy today it, as, as president, it's because progressives as well as conservatives and libertarians are rediscovering the dangers of the unconstrained populist presidency, are concerned like Taft of tweeting presidents because Taft and Madison thought the president should never communicate directly with the people because it might inflame populist passion. There's this amazing moment where the big issue is tariff reform. It's just as it is today. And the Republican Party is breaking itself apart over tariffs. The free traders, uh, progressives, want to really significantly lower the tariffs. The stand-pat conservatives want to maintain high tariffs in order to protect northeastern manufacturers and western farmers are hurt. And Taft is in the middle. So he runs on this platform saying the Republican Party is committed to revision of the tariff. And he's such a constitutionalist. He takes this seriously. He says in his inaugural address, as I said in that campaign, I'm going to convene Congress in a special session to do what the platform said. So the special session is called Days After the Inauguration. And Taft is going to issue a special message to Congress. So Congress is sitting there waiting, and Taft's message arrives, and everyone's breathless. And the message says, as I said in my inaugural address, I think Congress should consider the promise in the Republican platform. If you have any more questions, read my inaugural address. And they're stunned. You know, they expected a state paper, and he dashed it off that morning in 350 words. But but that was because he read the Constitution and thinks that the president has the power to recommend legislation, but no authority at all to interfere with Congress's deliberation. So it's a disaster politically, and as a result, Taft is totally rolled, and the stand-pat Republicans led by Aldrich and Speaker Joe Cannon dilute his bill, and it satisfies no one. And then Taft goes on the campaign trail, and he says... This is the best tariff bill the Republican Party ever passed. Every word in that claim is true, but it represents what Michael Kinsley, my late New Republic colleague, late in the sense that we're no longer both working there, he called it a Kinsley gaffe. He said, in Washington, a gaffe is when a politician inadvertently tells the truth. (laughs) And that's what Taft did. It was the best tariff bill that the Republican Party ever passed, but it went viral on the wires and taken out of context. It seemed like Taft was endorsing rather than you know, apologizing for the compromise, and he gets hammered by all sides. So you present Taft as much less of the um, stand-pat, um, uh, completely conservative Republican that some have painted. You see, he's actually trying to hold a party together. He's president of us all, but he's also leader of a party, and he's trying to hold a party together and to be there these um, East Coast banker types and these West Coast uh, crazy progressive types, and he's trying to hold that party together, um, and he's more faithful, you believe, to Roosevelt's basic vision than Teddy Roosevelt comes to to believe. There's this break with with his mentor, Teddy Roosevelt. The historians have have presented him as this sort of, you know, fat banker type, 
um, Taft and the other historians. And you're saying, no, he's actually much more um, this moderate Republican trying to hold the party together and on tariff reform, on environmentalism and conservation of, of land, on regulation of the economy, sort of um, uh, the, the big trusts and monopolies and, and, and securities reform. He's actually more um, moderate, more Rooseveltian, more progressive than the, the cartoon has suggested. And he is all those things, and his reforms, unlike Roosevelt's, are lasting. The problem with executive orders is the next guy can overturn them. Uh, Trump is doing that with Obama, and Obama did that with George W. Bush. Taft's vision of moderate free trade was ultimately endorsed by Wilson and became uh, embodied in the consensus that prevailed until very recently in terms of NAFTA and a web of international organizations. Taft endorsed what became the League of Nations and believes in an international world court that will adjudicate all questions, and that created everything from the Paris Treaty to the World Trade Organization. And uh, in practical terms, more uh, environmental land got conserved and more antitrust suits brought than under Roosevelt. But this is what led to the break with Roosevelt, uh, because Roosevelt was infuriated first that Taft brought an antitrust suit against uh, the Northern Securities Company. It was tied up in the Standard Oil litigation. Roosevelt himself had refused to bring that suit uh, and by bringing it, Taft seemed to suggest that Roosevelt had been duped by J.P. Morgan when he agreed U- U.S. Steel? Northern Securities. Okay. Yeah. So he brings a suit that even Roosevelt won't bring. It looks like Roosevelt is corrupt. Roosevelt is furious and never forgives him for that. And then there's this amazing firing of one of Roosevelt's aides, which is a very great cautionary tale for the danger of lashing out in self-righteous indignation and firing high officials when you're in the White House. So um, there's, it's a kind of very convoluted uh, story, but essentially there's a whistleblower at the Environment Department who's claiming that T- uh, Taft's new Secretary of the Interior is giving away lands to a trust that may have been owned by Morgan and the Guggenheims. Taft first uh, is not persuaded by the charges and fires the lower-level official who is the whistleblower, and then he fires uh, Roosevelt's favorite environmental deputy, a moralistic crusader called Gifford Pinchot, whose unpleasant final legacy was prohibition and uh, was, was basically, a, uh, he was called Sir Galahad of the Woodlands. So he's this sort of moralistic type. And Taft, who's so insistent on personal loyalty that when someone insults his father, Taft runs to the newspaper editor's office and lifts the guy up and bashes his head against the ground. That's how much he cares about loyalty. And he says, I will not tolerate administrative insubordination, even though he's agonizing about it. He fires the guy. There's this huge uproar in a congressional hearing. Who's appointed as the lead counsel for the uh, people who are investigating? A young attorney, the people's lawyer, Louis Brandeis. Those of you who were here a couple of years ago know that Keel and I talked about Louis Brandeis. That was Jeff's last book. And, and Brandeis, who is just uh, relentless with facts, finds out through an extensive investigation that Taft has backdated a memo that he relied on to justify his firing of Gifford Pinchot. And it looks like, as in Washington, always the cover-up is worse than the crime. Taft said he backdated the memo to make it look like he was putting in order the memos necessary for reaching what he viewed as a judicial decision, but it's an indelible stain on his legacy, and he doesn't forgive Brandeis. He opposes Brandeis during his confirmation hearings as a zealot and a 
well, he uses words that have a sort of anti-Semitic tinge as well. And Brandeis considers Taft a uh, stand pat, uh, you know, plutocrat. But then there's this beautiful reconciliation. They get onto the Supreme Court, and Brandeis is so impressed by Taft's administrative skills that he says to Felix Frankfurter, Felix, how is it possible that a man we thought was so bad as president is such a good administrative officer? And Frankfurter sells Frankfurter says he hated being president and being chief is all happiness. So we're going to come to the Supreme Court part of Taft's life uh, soon enough. And, and the President Taft's role as the firer in chief um, in this affair is going to be relevant to a, the, maybe the most important decision that Chief Justice Taft will render, which is all about the president's power as firer in chief, the Constitution doesn't talk explicitly about removal, dismissal, um, but this important Taft opinion does, Myers versus United States, and Jeff shows how Taft's judicial views were shaped in part by his executive opinion with firing, but what many people in the audience you know, know about Taft um, is his weight, um, and 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 they want to ask you questions about bathtubs and other things. Jeff, as a biographer, is trying. You know, this is the problem for all biographers. How do you explain why people have the ideas that they do? You know, is it their, you know what happened in childhood, the rosebud issue? But you think that Taft's executive experiences as a firer are going to influence his judicial ideas about presidential power to fire. But you also actually have some very interesting observations about how Taft's struggle with his own weight actually influenced his actually constitutional vision. And I thought that was one of the more interesting. So why don't you tell us some bathtub stories and, um, and, and how Taft's weight connects somehow to his constitutional ideas. The most important takeaway from this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is the following. Taft was never stuck in a bath. <laughs> he wasn't. This was a tale that was peddled by Ike Hoover, the White House um, usher, and was confirmed by no other source. But people were obsessed with his weight. He became a sort of pop cultural meme at the time. Citizens of Glenwood, Colorado, greeted the president with a specially constructed bathing costume that they wanted him to put on so that he could be in the hot springs. And there were incredibly cool, jo- cruel jokes that today would be just considered weightist, uh, <laughs> which they were, about his size. People imagined Taft in barrels and said that a mean person stole his clothes and how terrifying it would be to have to take a bath with him. The meme of him in bathtubs became overwhelming. As it happened, he did overflow one bath in 1915 <laughs> at a resort. Uh, he got in the tub and the, it overflowed and flowed on the guests in the dining room below. And on the way out the next day, according to the New York Times, Taft looked at the ocean and said, one day I'll fence that in and then there won't be any more of these problems. He was also dealt with the weight jokes with endearing good humor. In his great book, Our Chief Magistrate and His Powers, which I recommend to you as a great book on presidential power, he tells the story about how a woman came to see him to ask that her son be admitted to West Point, despite his physical disabilities. And when Taft, as Secretary of War, let the boy in, the woman was so grateful she blurted out, Mr. Secretary, you're not nearly so fat as they say you are. (laughs) And Taft told that joke on himself. And then there was the famous story where he's on a he tells Secretary Stimson that he's taken a horseback ride and he's really Elihi proud of it. Root. Or Elihi Root. Sorry, thanks. And uh, Root cables back, how was the horse? <laughs> so he takes it with good humor. But this is what you must know and what's so admirable about this remarkable man. 
he, he basically ate his feelings. He was large as president because he hated being president. But after he was relieved from the presidency and became professor of constitutional law at Yale, he lost 76 pounds in six months on a paleo diet. There was this diet doctor who uh, worked with King Edward VII as well, who prescribed mostly fruits and vegetables and not very much else. He could have an occasional gluten-free biscuit or beef tea, but basically by strenuously disciplining himself, he lost 76 pounds. The sleep apnea that had affected him when he was president disappeared. As president, he couldn't sleep throughout the night and be jarred awake every few minutes, uh, keeping him exhausted during the day, and he'd fall asleep in public as a result. But after he lost the weight, he's alert, buff, trim, just a lean, mean, judicial machine. And he gives this beautiful speech where he connects his own struggles to master his weight with the struggle of citizens in a democracy to master their own passions. And he says that in a democracy, the people do rule, but they can only rule rightly if they do so thoughtfully. And they restrain the first impulse of passion and instead are ruled by reason. And so, just as struggles with weight or strong drink require self-discipline, so does citizenship in a democracy. And it's true. And, he, and it's just admirable to see him recording every day his weight loss and then living it. And then just to see how productive and joyful he was um, for most of the rest of his fit, happy, and productive life. So we're going to get to the judicial part. But just before I do, so maybe one more thought on... Um, because, again, as an historical society, I think we want to reflect a little bit about why we do history, what we get from history, what's the point um, of reading or writing history. And you have a certain sense of... Um, this is part of a series on the presidency. As Jeff mentioned, um, Arthur Schlesinger is the general editor. These are very accessible volumes. They're sort of incisive. Um, uh, they're... Um, as I said, a very accessible, a high schooler, an, a, an AP student, I think, could um, read them. So who's your audience for this? Um, why do you think biography is a particularly important you know, form of history? Um, is there anything distinctive about presidential biographies as opposed to biography generally? Um, did you read the other books in you know, this series. How do you think about um, being a presidential biographer? Well, it's an honor to be in this incredible series. The late Arthur Schlesinger was the general editor. The editor was uh, uh, my friend Sean Wilentz, the great Princeton professor. And the general editor of the series is the great Paul Golub from Henry Holt, who's here in the audience and edited all these <coughs> wonderful books. Um, this is nearly the last book in the American President series. Why would the 27th president be the last biographer? It's because, unfortunately, I have the work habits of William Howard Taft. And I got this homework assignment years ago, but just procrastinated because uh, I can only write on deadline. And Paul finally said, you know, you really have got to get this out or the guy who's doing Obama is going to beat you. So I imposed a six-month deadline on myself. It's the only way I can write books. And I just wrote a chapter a month uh, and pumped the thing out. And here it is. And I was inspired to write it that way by studying the self-discipline and passion of William Howard Taft. The reason it's so exciting to write biography is because you feel like you're channeling a voice from long ago and letting him speak in his own words. And it was so liberating to take this maligned figure, who I hadn't known too much about before getting the assignment, and reading his words and realizing that he had a coherent vision as president and chief justice, and that he pursued it 
with integrity and consistency and agree with it or not, it was a noble vision rooted in the Constitution. And it was obviously very exciting for me as a teacher and student of the Constitution to see the only president who actually approaches the presidency in judicial terms. And it was thrilling. I couldn't wait to get up every morning and read more of him and then let him speak for himself. And then there are these beautiful records of Taft. 1908 was the first campaign in which... Phonographic phonographic records. records In which records actually played a central part. And it was the, I don't know, the YouTube videos of their day and citizens would gather in barns to hear competing records by Taft and Bryan... And they were just William thrilled. Jennings Bryan William against Jennings who Bryan. we ran in 1908. You can hear them. Ward Marston, has, they're all on YouTube, but you know, if you really want to be wonky and get a thrill, you can hear from afar these voices with extraordinarily wonky judicial speeches on the people's rule or the presidency and the tariff or the rights of labor. And it's remarkable to see people's attention span in those days. They were willing to sit and listen to very detailed speeches about the Constitution and about tariff policy, but then hearing him speak in his own words, and there's this one beautiful record where he's reading poetry, and he is reciting one of his favorite poems, the Shandon Bells, how oft I remember those Shandon Bells flew round my cradle, their magic spells, and my wife Lauren and I went to uh, uh, Ireland, and we saw in County Cork the Cork Harbor that Taft had visited as a child, and then the church where the Shandon Bells rang and inspired him, and they inspired us. And I just felt like it was an act of spiritual liberation, letting him speak in his own voice and then allowing all of us to learn from his vision. And it's the best way to... We all must love history and study it. It's so important, and it's so fresh and relevant. It's so important for us to know in the age of populism that how our ancestors grappled with these problems. And the way to do it is by telling stories and just to find this incredibly compelling character and to brush away all of the stereotypes and let him speak uh, was such a joy. Okay, so we're going to talk about the judiciary now. But of the three branches of government, you see the presidency is the most personal. It's the entire power of one branch vested in one person. And given that, my pitch would be, you know, if you're going to read biography, presidential biography is a very good place to start precisely because there's such a connection between the person and the institution. You know, if you're looking about judges, it's only one of nine, you know, on the Supreme Court or one of a hundred senators, one of 435 House members. But, but um, to actually have a sense of the, the, the presidents is to have the spine of all of American history at your disposal. And it's in part because the presidency is our most personal. Um, um, of, but then he finally, okay, so for all of the, Jeff makes a better case for President Taft than President Taft made. Um, and he got his butt kicked, his you know quite ample butt kicked Kill. in. In when he runs for re-election, he gets two states. Two states. Okay. So, um, and and in part because he's not making the most compelling case. I think Jeff makes a better case for t- for President Taft's accomplishments than President Taft makes. In part because. Maybe he's, he doesn't think that's his job to, to, to talk. But then I he will not chief. play a part for popularity, he tells his aide Archie Butt. He says, if the people want to reject my vision, that's fine. He believes it's not his role to make a case for himself. All I did is yeah. condense his speeches and, right. and let you read them for yourself. Um, and, you know, maybe his heart wasn't quite in this job because he had been 
uh, a federal court of appeals judge early in life. He loved that job. He gave it up because his country called, asked him to do other things. The stories are told in the book. We can't go into everything. You're going to have to read the book yourself uh, to get the, the full story. But he leaves his beloved judiciary. His, his father had been attorney general long ago. He comes from a very judicialized family. He loves the law. Um, he leaves the judgeship, does some things, eventually becomes president, has to make someone, give the chief justiceship to someone else, even though that's the job he most covets, puts all sorts of other people on the Supreme Court. So he leaves kind of maybe in disgrace in a way, at least um, electoral disgrace. But then he has yet one final act. He becomes chief justice. And you think he's actually a particularly distinctive chief justice. So tell us that part of the story. It's such a beautiful act of poetic justice. When he's a kid, his father, Alfonso Taft, whom he reveres, tells him to be chief justice is more than to be president, in my estimation. So he's spending his whole life yearning to be chief. He has this detour as president. Then it comes time for an point of chief justice, and he's in a bind. He says, it's an irony that I will be signing the commission of the man who's getting the job I most want myself. The natural candidate was Charles Evans Hughes, the dynamic uh, governor of New York, who Taft admires so much he can't think of anyone he admires more. But at the last minute, when he's about to appoint Hughes, he cancels the interview and instead appoints Edward Douglas White, the 65-year-old Southern Democrat. The only explanation for this bewildering appointment is that Taft is hoping that White will die in time for Taft to replace him. But for a difficult decade after Taft leaves the presidency, White refuses to expire. And Taft keeps checking in on him at the Supreme Court. How are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, would you like some more cheese? And, uh, and White is just doing fine. Thankfully for Taft, unexpectedly, White uh, expires without warning. Uh, and uh, it comes time for Harding to replace him. And after some heavy lobbying by Taft, he achieves his dream job. It's just remarkable to see how vigorously he plunged into this job. And he has three really significant opinions as chief. Uh, or rather achievements as chief. Uh, The first is to build the Supreme Court building, the Temple of Justice, that remarkable marble temple that I hope many of you have visited in D.C., was Taft's vision. And he thought the judiciary should have a building equal in dignity and weight to the Capitol and the White House. Previously, the court had met in the basement of the Capitol. Say that again. The court is meeting. The court is meeting in a basement room in the Capitol, There's no places for the judges to put on their robes. Spectators are gawking at them. In the basement of another branch's building. That's actually, that's L'Enfant's vision of of the three branches uh, in in the federal city. And Taft wants it separate across the street from the Capitol, majestic, and symbolizing a unified, fully equal judiciary. So he lobbies uh, and raises the money and builds the building. Then he wants to create... That's one. That's one. Dayenu. That would have been enough. <laughs> but there are two more, as Taft would have said. Um, we'll, do the, we'll do the questions after. Absolutely. The, 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 Why is this president that. thinner than every other president? <laughs> There's no question about it. Um, the, judicial, the Judiciary Act of the Judges Act of 1922. Sounds wonky. Taft wants to create the federal judiciary as a fully modern administrative branch of government equal in efficiency to the presidency and Congress. He's a genius as an administrator, and that sounds really wonky, but Henry Stimson, who was Secretary of War under Taft and served under Presidents Franklin Roosevelt, Hoover, 
And uh, Taft and Truman says that out of all those presidents, Taft was the finest administrator of them all. He was a genius administrator in the Philippines where he basically created the educational system for the islands. And the, the federal judicial system at that time is clogged up with prohibition cases. It's inefficient. Judges are riding across the country from 19th century uh, circuit riding traditions. And Taft thinks that judges can't protect the Constitution unless they're well-staffed and well-funded and well-coordinated in a judicial conference. So he persuades Congress to pass this law. He creates squadrons of what he calls flying judges to parachute in where there's backlogs. And the judges are so grateful that Augustus Hand, Learned Hand's uh, brother, says, thank you. You know, no one had ever attended to these administrative needs. Finally, the judiciary can meet the needs of a modern society. And then finally... So that's two. That's two. The number three is the Judiciary Act of 1925, which gives the Supreme Court control over its own docket. Again, this seems wonky, but it's hugely important because before this act was passed, the court was forced to hear most cases that were presented to it. So the judges' time were wasted with these very low-level disputes about property and tort and you know, private matters that didn't have broad constitutional implications. Taft allows the judges to decide which cases they want to hear. Or gives con- gets Congress to. Gets Congress to pass this law, giving them discretion over their own docket. As a result, they can not hear the trivial cases, limit their consideration to the really significant ones, <clears throat> and as a result, the court hears only 80 cases a year today, as opposed to the thousands that it heard in Taft's age. The result of this is that Taft, um, according, uh, so we had a great conversation about Taft at the National Constitution Center last week, and Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit was my distinguished interviewer, and he said he believes that Taft was the greatest chief justice since John Marshall, the great chief, which is an unusual, uh, startling opinion that uh, provoked gasps of delight in the Constitution Center, too, because a 1993 survey put him after fifth, fifth after Warren, after Marshall, uh, Hughes, Earl Warren, and, and, Stone. and Stone. I uh, think he's certainly higher than Stone, who was no, uh, who, who was no good at uh, achieving what uh, Taft's greatest political achievement was, massing the court. Taft believes, like our current chief, John Roberts, who very much admires Taft, that it was the chief's responsibility to mass the court behind narrow, unanimous opinions, often written by the chief, because he thought that only a unanimous court could provoke bipartisan respect in a polarized age. So Taft persuades judges like Brandeis, his former rival, and Holmes to suppress dissents and join him in unanimous opinions. As a result, the rate of unanimity soars in the early Taft years, and he's the most successful conciliator and uh, uh, provoker of compromise and unanimity than anyone since Marshall. So, so uh, we're going we're gonna to take your questions soon enough, um, but you have to tell them about his most important constitutional decision um, in the case of Myers versus United States, because we promised to connect the dots between a t- President Taft who fires people and Chief Justice Taft who affirms the right of presidents to fire people. Well, you taught me... Because firing people is, on, is important, uh, this power today. It, it is important today as it was then, as it was from the time of Washington. Many of the most important conflicts over presidential power that have led to presidential impeachments involved firing. And this Myers opinion, which you taught me, Akhil, and you're going to tell uh, our friends more about it after I introduce it, involves whether the president can fire a, a, a postmaster whom he's appointed and doesn't like 
And for Taft, the central question he has to look at is the Johnson impeachment. Andrew Johnson was impeached because he violated a law called the Tenure of Office Act, which prohibited the president from firing officers, including his secretary of war, without congressional approval. Although Johnson was ultimately acquitted, Taft, in his Myers opinion, said that that Tenure of Office Act was an unconstitutional intrusion on the president's power to supervise a unitary executive branch, and his ruling on that score became one of the major uh, decisions for executive power today, Uh, champions of what's called the unitary executive theory, which include everyone from conservatives uh, in the George W. Bush administration who insisted that the president could act unilaterally in the war on terror, to Justice Elena Kagan, who as an administrative law professor said that a Democratic president should have broad authority to control the administrative state, all invoked Taft's unitary executive theory and broad vision of executive power. But you have some thoughts on Meyer as well. And what is your judgment about how well it's held up? So I think Meyer's is a very important opinion. Um, and uh, I'm going to get into the questions uh, in just a minute. It's, it's hard for Jeff, though, because Jeff's last book was all about how great Brandeis was. Okay? And Brandeis is dissenting in Myers and, and Tevye, they can't both be right, you, you know. Uh, so um, uh, um, you... I didn't say he was right. I just uh, described its importance. And you don't say quite he's right. I actually think he's right, but you're, you're a little bit too much of a Brandeis guy. Um, so um, I think that the president, that that law in Myers was obviously unconstitutional because here's what it said. If a president wants to fire someone in the executive branch, he's got to get the Senate to agree. Just like you need the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint, you need the advice and consent of the Senate to remove, to disappoint, so to speak. And Brandeis says, fine by me. 9-0 today, that's unconstitutional. That's a legislative veto. That's why you were way too nice to Brandeis in the last book. Brandeis's vision, you know, is, was not so... So I'm more with Taft on that one, but there are a whole bunch of other cases. This is what I want you to... This is the final, this is the hard question, because when it comes to famous privacy debate, a, a case called Olmstead. Oh, Brandeis is on one side, Taft is on the other. When it comes to child labor, actually deep in his heart... Brandeis is on one side, Taft is on um, another. When it comes to injunctions uh, limiting labor unions, Taft is on one side, Brandeis is on the other. Your last book was all about how, and, and privacy, the Olmstead case, Taft on one side, Brandeis on the other, and Myers. So the hard question at the end is, your last book was all about the greatness of Brandeis. This one's all about letting Taft speak in his own voice. You know, how do we reconcile these? An easy answer, if forced to choose between the jurisprudence of Taft and Brandeis, I vote for Brandeis. Brandeis is the greatest uh, prophet of privacy and technology in the 21st century. Compare, this is really relevant uh, in wake of today's Facebook news. It's what you were talking about yesterday on C-SPAN in Washington, D.C. It was. What a thrilling uh, conversation that, that was. And the question is, you know, uh, in uh, an age of ubiquitous drone surveillance and cell phone uh, surveillance, and the Supreme Court is going to decide this very question in June, can the government subpoena 
uh, five months of our cell phone records and reconstruct our movements in public for five months. Uh, here, this Supreme Court, I believe this is a really interesting division. I, I am predicting, uh, there's a point in the book where Theodore Roosevelt says, I am the seventh son of a seventh daughter who has clairvoyant powers. I see a great large man before me. Will it be the presidency or the chief justiceship? Make it the chief justiceship, says Mr. Taft. Make it the presidency, says Mrs. Taft. So I'm, doing, I'm being the clairvoyant. I think this court will overwhelmingly, if not unanimously, hold that no, the government may not surveil our movements in public for five months. But some of the judges, led by Justice Neil Gorsuch, I think will, be, will do so on Taftian grounds. They will emphasize rights of private property and will hold that we have property rights in our data that the cell phone companies may not lightly turn over to the government uh, without our consent. Whereas other justices, led by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, will be Brandeisian and says, regardless of whether there's a physical trespass involved, we have an expectation of privacy in the whole of our movements because 24-7 surveillance can reveal so much about our unexpressed thoughts, sensations, and emotions. In the Olmstead case, Brandeis was a kind of, Taft was a sort of wooden originalist. He said the framers thought there had to be physical trespass to trigger the Constitution. Here you could tap someone's phones without trespassing in their office by putting wiretaps under the public sidewalk. Therefore, there's no problem. And Brandeis looks forward to the age of cyberspace and cloud computing and says we need to translate the Constitution so even uh, surveillance without trespass is forbidden. And on a whole other range of issues, I am with Brandeis, not with Taft. Taft's great achievement as Chief Justice is administrative and uh, 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 collegial. He creates the modern federal judiciary as we know it. And he persuades a unanimous Supreme Court to act as a court and prepares it to engage in all of the great, more Brandeisian opinions that it's able to do so today. Uh, but jurisprudentially, Brandeis was a Jeffersonian, Tafta, Marshall, uh, Acolyte, or Hamiltonian. The reason Brandeis has a different vision of executive power is because he says the framers of the Constitution intended to create not efficiency, but liberty. And that's why they allowed Congress to constrain the powers of the president to... Fire. So in a nutshell, and then I've got some of the, these uh, questions that you have, I would say Taft's watchword is property to some important extent, and Brandeis's is privacy, and there's a slight difference between them, and you think we'll see some interesting variations on that theme of the move from pri- property to privacy uh, this term. Brandeis is liberty. He's a Jefferson. But also the right of privacy very much. The right Brandeis. of privacy rooted yeah. in our... Uh, Fourth Amendment. Okay, so this is a, a question, and I think it's a, just a softball, you know, right down the middle. Um, <laughs> oh, so I couldn't they, possibly. So just so they understand what your thesis is. Doris Kearns Goodwin has claimed that Taft sold out to big business. Do you agree? I do not. Yes. That's Taft right. you do not. champions, what's his way of funding the federal government after he lowers tariffs? A tax on corporations. He is, in this sense, the anti-Trump. He champions a corporate income tax because he thinks that uh, corporations should pay their share. He's so aggressive in his champion of anti-corporate campaign laws that Theodore Roosevelt says, I really think you're going a little far and being overly scrupulous in returning campaign contributions from corporations. And it's in some, and someone asks, has Theodore Roosevelt become the candidate of J.P. Morgan and big business. So Taft, in his vigorous devotion to the law, above all, and to antitrust suits against corporations where he's more vigorous than Roosevelt, is much more of a uh, legalist than uh, Roosevelt. 
Now, here's another one. These are the questions that one wants to get as an author. Like, if you're right, then, like, why has, ever, has everyone missed it? Okay? Why? And, and that, that's, that's a good question because you're actually starting to persuade people. Well, we'll see. You know, this is this a oh, different part of the division of Taft than I've heard. Why are, is, are Taft's legacy and accomplishments not as prominent in the narrative of American history as are many of his predecessors and successors? Um. I think part of it is because we, I mean, I'm not claiming that he was a great president. The C-SPAN poll, the latest nonpartisan poll, puts him at about 22nd in the middle. And I think that that's right. I mean, he, by refusing to play a part for popularity, as he put it, he failed to uh, unify the party. He led to the schism. He ultimately destroyed the Republican Party for a generation. So and when, we need, he's, we need, when he's elected... The Republicans are in control of the House and the Senate, and they've, they've won the presidency again and again and again and again. He doesn't get, and, and again and again, you know, there, there have basically been one Democrat since Lincoln, you know, who wins two non-consecutive elections, um, Grover Cleveland. He manages to screw the pooch, okay, to, 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 to lose re-election and hand over Washington, both House and Senate, yes. to the Democrats. And you know so, why he loses and yeah, why so tell loses. Them the story. Joe Cannon says, anyone who is foolish enough to take up tariff reform is going to lose the next election and screw it up for their party. And that's what happened to Grover Cleveland, who was the last president to take on the tariff issue. And that's what happened to Taft, and it was sort of brave but blinkered, and he suffered the consequences. So he was not uh, a mobilizing or galvanizing political figure, and mostly because he was surrounded by two such dynamic populists, Roosevelt and Wilson, he suffered in comparison. Uh, the historian uh, Perry Arnold says uh, Taft is viewed as a mediocrity, but that's largely because he was viewed by the standards of his successor and predecessor. Viewed by contemporary standards, he would have been a success. He brought all these antitrust suits and so forth. But here, my, case, my case for Taft is not that he was a brilliant president, but that he was our most judicial president, and that in an age when suddenly constitutional limitations on the power of the presidency and the dangers of unchecked democracy and the fear that the rule of law will be undermined by populism is becoming increasingly urgently obvious to people of both sides... His model is relevant. And then there's this poetic symmetry to the fact that as our most presidential chief justice, he is a great success and achieves as chief many of the constitutional goals that had eluded him but as you president. Say, but you say one other thing. So when you think about our presidency, because it's one person, it's very interesting how many of our greatest presidents follow actually some of our worst. So it's the dramatic contrast between... James Buchanan, may he rot in hell, and Abraham Lincoln, that's so dramatic, you know, the failed Hoover and the sainted Franklin Roosevelt. It's these very interesting contrasts. You know, George Washington the first, basically compared to George the third. You see, so, uh, and yes, in the conventional narrative, his predecessor, T.R. shines so brightly, he's up there on Rushmore, such a compelling figure. Woodrow Wilson, who's also a two-termer, um, 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 for the Democrats, two-termer for the Republicans. But although this is about Taft, you actually taught me something. I think less of Wilson and of T.R. after this book than I did before. So why don't you tell him what you really think about some of the flaws of, of T.R. <laughs> well, and, and Wilson? You, you, I mean, you know, you, you're a little too nice. I'm trying to get you to say some negative things here. You, you're, you've always been such a good teacher <laughs> in that regard. 
Um, they, they, Roosevelt behaved in the election of 1912 like a like a demagogue. He, he disgracefully disgracefully he he walks out of the convention of 1912, which he plausibly argues was stolen by party bosses loyal to Taft by saying, we march for he, Armageddon like a, and for pull, the Lord. Pull, pulling a Bernie Sanders, saying it was all rigged. He, he said it was rigged, and maybe it was, but those were the rules and so forth. And then he's just, he sounds like President Trump. He's going after individual judges. And then he says, people, you must rise up and overturn these wicked judicial decisions, which are hurting working people. In the National Constitution Center, there is a quotation from Teddy Roosevelt that says, the people themselves must be their own master and they must rule. Who put this up on the wall of the National Constitution Center? I don't understand because Roosevelt goes on to say, you've got to overturn judicial decisions and the people have to decide what the Constitution means. And that kind of demagoguery you know, especially amplified in the age of social media where it becomes so much more dangerous, is exactly what the framers uh, feared. And Roosevelt, too, writes these two... So, I, you know, some, some good reading. Uh, Roosevelt uh, was an author and wrote about his adventures. Wilson, the political science rep- professor, writes two books on the Constitution. The first argues that Congress should be like the British Parliament and one party should rule without any respect for the minority. And then Grover Cleveland's vetoes persuade him that the president can play an independent checking role, and he totally changes his tune. And the revision, constitutional government in the United States, says the president should be a steward of the people who reflects their deepest passion and channels their will. The idea of presidents reflecting passions and channeling will is not so appealing uh, nowadays, and Taft's fears of populism look present. And it, it just even just what you just said, Look, these are people who actually not just read books, but wrote them. They did. Okay, you, as compared, you know, so, so, well, and Obama was a constitutionalist, but, but Woodrow Wilson is, a, is the president of Princeton, and he's actually a constitutional scholar of a certain sort. And Taft, you know, after the presidency, and before the chief justice, he really has this, you know, I would say that the most important position, which is, Professor at Yale Law School. Um, um, so, um, and, and he's so. a constitutional, he, he so. um, constitutional scholar. And they, he, he joked that you know that he didn't want a chair but a sofa or something. Exactly, yes. um, so, uh, uh, so you know, Teddy Roosevelt has a constitutional vision. You and I think it may be a little dangerous, but but these are big constitutional thinkers as presidents of the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. And suddenly, you know the bully pulpit and speaking softly with a big stick are looking less appealing in an age of unilateral presidential war actions. And, right. And so so you're, you're and harder on Roosevelt. This isn't yes, just but, Taft, but, but you actually are bringing Roosevelt and Wilson down I a am, notch. Although Sean Wilentz, the great uh, general editor of the series who knows far more about the progressive era and the populace than I do, thought I was too hard on Roosevelt and Wilson and tried to pull back my reducing them to the populist demagoguery they showed in the 1912 campaign where no one was really at his best. But uh, here's what Taft did when it came to war. The party is crying for war against Mexico. And the people are saying, you've got to send the troops against the border because there's this insurrection in Mexico. And go across the wall and show who's boss, make America great again. Taft reads the Constitution and he says, the Constitution allows Congress, not the president, to initiate hostilities. I will send troops up to the American border, but not over. And he invokes as his model uh, the uh, bad example of President Polk, who'd sent troops over the Mexican border, falsely claiming that Mexico had invaded first, and a young congressman called Abraham Lincoln demands that Polk identify the precise spot where Mexican troops crossed the border, naming him the 
nickname Spotty Lincoln. So Taft, like Lincoln, is saying up to the border and no more. And as a result, he keeps the peace. The Mexico goes to uh, the insurrection proceeds anyway. And it's in, can you imagine a president today resisting the, cr- the cries of the people, the blood cries to gain popularity by starting a war because he thinks the Constitution forbids it? Um, maybe a couple of final questions we've got time for. Okay. So um, um, one, since... Um, the, the, the book is really quite poignant about the relationship between Roosevelt and Taft. And at one point, they're the best of friends, quite literally. And, and Taft wouldn't be president but for Teddy Roosevelt and his wife, basically, both sort of pushing him. And he's trying faithfully, he believes, to carry out Roosevelt's main agenda, but, but with his own constitutional vision and provide a more solid foundation. But there's this huge break with Roosevelt, and then they run against each other, and Roosevelt thinks that the, that the, the nomination has been stolen from him by Taft, and there's this huge rift. And, and Roosevelt gets more votes as a third-party candidate than, and wins more states then does Taft, and they say all and Roosevelt says all sorts of nasty things about his friend Taft, and Taft is crying about this literally because this this hurts him. So, and, and Roosevelt doesn't come off so well. Um, you don't tell in the book, I believe, um, as any story of about ultimate reconciliation. Was there an ultimate? Rec- I'm, I'm asked. Um, could you describe the moment Taft and Roosevelt reconciled and then Taft's attendance at Roosevelt's funeral? I don't know if you know that story, but, but a, if you do. It's a beautiful story. They did say terrible things about each other. They, uh, Roosevelt called Taft a flub-dub with a streak of the second rate about him. And Taft is so upset by, these, by the rift that he is on his railway car and he just breaks into uncontrollable sobs and says, Roosevelt was my closest friend. He was very tender-hearted, and Roosevelt seemed to lack a similar capacity for friendship. But they did have a reconciliation uh, after the defeat where they ran into each other by accident in a hotel dining room and Taft sees Roosevelt sitting there and they come up to each other and initially are wary, but then vigorously shake hands and begin chatting like it's old times and the whole dining room is watching them and then everyone breaks into applause. So it's a really meaningful a moment of reconciliation, and Roosevelt dies not too long after, and Taft does go to his funeral. He was always loyal and tenderhearted, and he was so happy that they reconciled. Okay, last question. Um, if Taft could speak from his grave, what would be the single most important piece of advice that he might give to our current president? You must be guided by the Constitution. It is the source of your authority. The authority of the president comes not directly from the people, but from the supreme instrument of law ordained in the people's name. Each of your actions must be guided by fidelity to this great instrument, and nothing may be done that the Constitution forbids. Resist the importunations of popularity, and of temporary political gain, and recognize that in America, the people can only rule when they rule thoughtfully and deliberately and are guided by reason rather than passion. Your role as president is not to inflame the people's basest impulses, but to inspire them to be guided by their highest angels, 
be worthy of this high praise and you will win the accolades of history, betray it, and you will be viewed as a demagogue. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.